Welcome to the Global Marketing Show, the podcast for all things international business. I'm your host, Wendy Pease, president of Rapport International and a translation expert. Come along with me today as we talk to an expert in the global marketing world about facing their biggest fears, hearing about mistakes they made or saw, discussing best practices, and sharing fun travel language and culture stories. Oh, I am so excited today. We've got somebody that, with vast experience, and he's calling in from Singapore. So we're welcoming Kyle Hegarty. He is the author of The Accidental Business Nomad. You've got to get the book. It's on Amazon. He's the managing director at TSL Marketing, and he's got a wealth of experience. So Kyle, welcome to the Global Marketing Show. Thank you so much, Wendy. It's great to be here. So how did you end up in Singapore? Let's start with a little background there. Oh, it's the standard story. I was basically, I followed the girl. (laughs) One of those, one of those stories. In, in some ways it was a, it was a bit of an accident. My now wife at the time, my girlfriend, we were both based in Boston. She started collaborate. She's a scientist. She was over at MIT and they were collaborating with a group here in Singapore. That was sort of the seed that got planted into our brains. And without having kids at that point or mortgage, uh, you know, we could just pick up and go. What, what, what happened on my side was I was basically uh, running a small little marketing company out of Boston, TSL, which is a lead generation company. We do end to end B2B marketing for mainly for tech companies. I had a nice book of business in North America, some clients in Europe, and I did what any young goofy salesperson does. I oversold an idea before I had any idea what to do. So in other words, I, I just started telling clients, Oh, by the way, we're doing this in Asia. (laughs) And, um, and so (laughs) The, this would have been 2005, 2006, and the momentum was certainly coming towards Asia even even back then. And a majority, or not majority, but a number of clients wrote back right away, said, yes, if you're in Asia, we're, we'll take it. And I ended up signing these contracts having no idea what to do. I found myself getting onto the flights and I was just, I was flying back and forth from Boston to Singapore, which is if, if you're lucky, it's a 24 hour round trip. Sorry, 24 hour trip. One way uh, trip. If you're lucky. <laughs> one way trip with the 12 hour plus time zone, jet lag and everything. And so I was doing, I did that one year, 12 times. Nice little healthy carbon oh footprint God. there for you. And finally, it was like, look, I, the, the, the moment, the, the business is in Southeast Asia for me. That's where the opportunity is. And I just found it that myself, you know, okay, I'm, I'm here um, hoping my girlfriend followed through with, with her plan, which was to move her, her science and, and put a lab over here, which, which she did. So we both kind of ended up here, I, partially accidentally, but, you know, we were both following the opportunities. Right. So how long have you been there now? 15 years. That's and amazing. in our little, in our little COVID bubble, we've been uh, in stuck in this 20 mile radius little Island for the last 16 months. So I haven't, I don't think I've been outside a 15 or 20 mile radius since, since then. So you two met here in Boston, you started a life over, you decided to pursue this dream, moved over there, got married and had kids, right? 
our timing was good. We left in 2006 and all of my friends were like, you know what? I'm buying a house. Like, oh, it's a great time to buy a house. 2006, 2007. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go to Asia and set up a company. And so I think I, 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 I won that bet, but, but yeah, so we were, we were, our timing was very fortuitous and, and lucky, I would say. Right. Uh, yeah, two kids later and yeah, two kids later. And we're, we're one of these expats uh, that has a, it's a funny thing over here and in a lot of parts where there's a two year plan just two more, two years. And then, and then all of a sudden it's like, well, two more years. So I think we're on our eighth two year plan. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And so are you so settled or you think you'll come back? Yeah, we'll come back. Well, so my wife's from the UK, so we'll probably, our next stop will probably be to the UK. I think that from a times, you know, they, the Brits did it well. They, they planted the flags and they got the time zones in their favor. The best part of the world would be Western Europe, I would say, to do a global type of role simply from a time zone standpoint. So I think that that's probably our next, our next point to, uh, to land. Okay. And so Your you plan. had never, you had been over for business to Singapore, but you had never lived there. Correct. Yeah. We, I, I was, I had partnered with local agencies and was really just doing what so many companies do, you know, to, to get a foothold into a new region, which is you, you find local partners and you, and you go that way. We just found that the momentum, so many clients were sincerely trying to expand into Asia as well. The timing was great. So it made sense for me. I, I, I can't, I can only do so many of those 24 hour commutes. Right, <laughs> right. And, and, so, and there was, you know, there's just, a, it's an adventure and it's a great region. I mean, it, 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 the, the, again, our timing has been great from a, a growth standpoint. I mean, this is, this is historically probably one of the greatest growth periods that's ever happened in this, re, in this region. So we're, we, 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 we timed it well. Yes, you did. Now, you know, everybody has struggles when they become an expat or live internationally. Can you take us back to the beginning and talk about some, you know, particularly in the business side, what were some of the differences? Yeah, Singapore is an easy place compared to a lot of other places. It's often called the, the entry point or Asia light because there's such a Western influence and infrastructure here work everything works so it's 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 easier than some of the challenges that we've had in other other regions i think the thing that hit me very quickly was the cross-cultural communication stuff that's the culture clash that i think people talk about so frequently and that's what i got into in the book which was even small conversations where you're thinking one thing something else is happening i think in the first chapter i use a little bit of a goofy example of ordering drinks at a bar and here and across the region, they have these one-for-one promotions. And I, to me, English, one-for-one, one-for-one, which, which actually means, yeah, the, the one-for-one would be two for the price of one. So that's fine. But then if you're ordering these drinks, and I kind of walk through the story in, in the first chapter, it's like, yeah, okay, so I'll have a, I'll have a beer, uh, we'll have uh, two beers, and they'll bring you four because it's one-for-one. So you, so, so... And you go, well, wait a minute, I just want, I just want two beers. And the, and the waiter will go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Here, here's your two beers. And you're staring at four. And it's like, well, I'm, I'm, I think it's just such a small but useful example of, of what 
can be crystal clear to one person and totally a different, you know, even the basic ideas of numbers can, can vary depending on the situation. You put a couple more zeros at the end of those numbers, and now we're talking about business mistakes. And that's where some massive problems happen. And what I kept seeing over and over were companies coming in here using their playbook from the US, from Europe, from Australia, Western companies, and hitting these, these one for one moments, you know, in small ways, all the way up to multi-million dollar mistakes. And I was going through the, the same thing, hiring people, thinking that my communication style, my working style was going to be clear and effective to find out that actually I'm building a team that's incredibly dysfunctioned and unhappy and, you know, we're, we're all going in different directions. And so that's, that's kind of the, the impetus for writing the book because there were so, it, it, everybody goes through that learning curve. My business, what I've done is try to, to ask the question, is there a way to shorten that learning curve? Is there a way to put it into a bottle? And, and unfortunately the answer is no, but I do think that you can through the power of storytelling, I think you can learn a lot of, from other people's mistakes and try to avoid some of these things. <laughs> Right. And that's what we try to do with the podcast, too, is just get these yeah, stories exactly. out there so people can pop on and, and, and listen and get those takeaways. Yeah. Yeah. That I'll, one give you, I'll give one. you a work. So, oh, sorry. Uh, you know, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I love that one for one story because that's so you could see somebody saying, I'll have a beer and two showing up. Or you could say, you know, see it. I'll have two beers. And OK, yeah. that's your one for one. So it's right, such a right. subtle thing. But I, I understand yes. it. Go ahead. You were going to give me another work example. Another work example. I did this to a degree. And another an Australian guy came to me years later and he explained that he did the same thing where he inherited a, a team. This case, in both of our cases, it was a sales team. We kind of had, we walked into a situation where there was a existing sales team and all of a sudden you're the foreign manager now in charge. And he and I had a, so we, we have similar backgrounds, I think, in mindsets and working styles. And basically the talk that I gave was, you know, um, you all, I, I was managing people from the whole region. So I was like, you know, you all know your market inside and out. You certainly know it better than I do. I don't, you know, I'm, I'm coming from another part of the world. I'm going to be looking to you for, for guidance and for help. And I need you to bring ideas and I want us to work together. And really, I want you to think of, you know, me as, uh, as somebody who can support you. And he did the exact same thing. And in both cases, what, what we were trying to convey was basically that kind of sense of a flat hierarchy. We're all in this together. Let's be open and, and, you know, leverage off of each other's strengths. What in both cases was heard from the audience, in this case, the teams was I stand up and I basically declare that I have no idea what I'm doing <laughs> and I have no authority and you're all screwed if you're going to be working in this team. Uh, and that, usually that kind of a pep talk will, that if you survive it, that's a six month process to dig yourself out of. <laughs> so there, you know, there, there's kind of, you're taking your one for one bar situation and translating that into what I would say would be a pretty typical work situation that 
happens all the time. I have heard that story so many times and it's such yeah. a subtle one. Like you just, yeah. you're trained in the U S or Australia to come in and, and, and you go, Oh good. I've got a leader who's going to listen to me. Whereas in Asia, there's more hierarchical. I want somebody who I, knows is going to give me direction and yeah. Correct. Correct. And, and it doesn't, it doesn't mean that you have to come in and be a hard ass and, and uh, you know, a dictator, but, it, but there's a, there, there's a definite, change in management style that you have to to work through i noticed this even in coaching so uh, what i what i when i started going through the process of understanding some of the different cultural nuances and, and i think the hierarchy thing is such always one of the core ones that you that you mentioned and that that's yeah, part love, of this example love that story yeah. that you just told because i've heard about it but you've gone through the direct experience so it's oh nice yes to hear oh yes um, yeah yeah. Another another example would be coaching. Yes. So uh, coaching methodologies. I I, I was a, I am a big fan of I think his name is, is Michael Stainier. He wrote a book called The Coaching Habit, and it's a it's it's a it's a wonderful book on coaching, but it doesn't work everywhere the same way. You've got to you've got to localize. His approach is create. I think I, he's either American or Australian or blend or something, but his approach, I think he creates this methodology based on his surroundings, which has a lower hierarchy and a assumption of equal status in terms of communication styles. And I don't say this in any way to belittle his book. I think it's a great, in fact, I've, I've reached right. out to him. He, 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 he read, he gave me a, a reference for my book. He gave me an endorsement and we we're actually thinking about collaborating on a, on a project together down the, down the road, which is really cool. So because, because of this, and I've said, you know, I love your stuff. Here's how I've modified it to make it work here because you're going in with the assumptions just saying, okay, Hey, you know, first year here, Hey, intern, you know, tell me what, tell me, tell me what, what, what are you thinking? <laughs> it's not going to work <laughs> everywhere. Right. So how would so, you yeah. modify that? How would you be successful in Asia if you're coaching or managing as a you know, from outside. What, so it, it's still, so the, the methodology at a high level still works, which is essentially flipping the script. His, I think his approach in this case is ask great questions, get the, get the other person talking through the challenge, let them discover potential solutions, let them define a next step and then offer only offer your support at the end. I think the way to adjust that in a more traditional hierarchy, uh, hierarchical environment is to put a little bit more structure to it, to offer a little bit of guidance earlier on in the process to make it clear that the decisions that get made, you're going to hold them accountable for. So it's, it's, like, a, it's like a, what was the expression I recently heard? The, uh, the velvet hammer, which, which I think is a, a way to give feedback. So it's kind of, it's like, it's a soft, still nice approach. You want them talking, but at the same time, you're not, you, you don't want to assume you're going to get the same level of immediate response and feedback that you might get in other parts of the world. And the, the other piece that I've added to that is storytelling. So give more examples from your side as you go through a coaching experience. So rather than just have them do say 70% of the talking, it might not work that way because some people don't speak up as quickly because of some of the, uh, we'll call it the cultural baggage that we all bring into any conversation. So rather than sit there and just complete awkward silence, 
tell some stories, give some examples of what has worked, give some examples of turnaround stories to soften the conversation and to make people feel more comfortable. So I found that those are two ways to change the script a little bit to make it work. That is fantastic advice. I mean, I think you've really put a structure at it because I've I've heard something like the velvet hammer before. And yeah. there's still the authenticity and there's still the kind, there's still the emotional intelligence that goes into it, but you're changing Correct. your communication style to make the other person feel more comfortable is in what they expect. That's exactly, that's, a, that, that's you know, the, the big takeaway from all of this. And I think that I looked at a couple of core ideas out of the book and, and this is what I do now. I, I do a lot more coaching and, and work with teams who are, uh, who are working internationally. We do it all virtually now. So there's, okay. So we, we can talk wait, about that. We'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I want to get into that now. So, you know, tell me more mm. about TSL marketing. Are you still doing the lead generation and the coaching? So tell, tell us what you're doing now. The TSL marketing in Asia, the original plan based on the client excitement and enthusiasm was that we were going to start rolling out global marketing programs. Mm -hmm. So the big guys, the big tech guys were saying, you've done this stuff in US, we've done bits and pieces of it in Europe, let's bring it to Asia. And it in many ways was an attempt to bring the headquarter playbook and apply it on the other side of the planet. And what we realized fairly quickly was that that was not going to work. You can't take an effective marketing campaign, cut it from the US, cut and paste it and put it into Southeast Asia. Uh, Southeast Asia is not a market. It is a region with <laughs> dozens of markets. India is not a market. You know, the, the, the North, and, uh, India is probably one of the most diverse countries I've, I've ever worked in. And so you, really want to think about things at a more localized approach. What we found was the local teams in some of these big companies didn't want a global agency working with them. They didn't like the fact that they were potentially losing control. They didn't like the fact that it was we were being sent over from headquarters. And so they deliberately, oftentimes, they pushed back. And mm -hmm. Pushback happens and gets expressed in different ways. Here, oftentimes, it's more subtle. So, the an expensive a large company would come in and say, "Okay, you know, Singapore region or whatever, whatever regional marketing team, you're going to. We want you to do this program." And everybody locally says yes. And what they are going to do is what they want to do, which is not what they just said yes to. And are they lying? Are they being duplicitous? No, it's just the style, the communication style is different. <laughs> and so what we found was we were, we did, we had a couple of years of, of mega growth. We ended up taking on a bunch of projects. We grew the team to about 45 in Southeast Asia. I think we had another maybe a hundred in India people. So I mean, we, we had some very uh, significant growth very quickly. But those campaigns oftentimes fizzled out because there was a lot of disagreement as to who was doing what, what they wanted. We, we found a lot of infighting amongst the big companies. So I still have a small team that does lead generation across the region. I would say 85% of my time has pivoted towards uh, this type of consulting work. So focusing on sales teams, helping them expand across the, the region, 
helping some marketing teams, but also just, just executive teams figure out what's their communication approach, how are they going to strengthen their virtual teams across the region or globally, what's that gonna look like uh, now that people can't travel, and how are they going to apply that relationship building internationally to their clients. So the, the entire business model shifted based on, on my experience trying to build a marketing agency that was global in, in, in nature. It's kind of an interesting evolution. Yeah, so I want to go back to the troubles, you know, the, the problems that you the ran troubles. into. The, yeah, <laughs> all the troubles you've seen. Oh, the troubles. Chapter. So, There's a chapter in the book on that. <laughs> yeah, so that's what we want to pull out now because I think that's where sure. the best learning comes through. So you started with the, you know, the yes that could mean no. And so why don't you start talk about that because that's a very important communication style and how do you work with that? Yeah. Um, talk so a I think the first more about it and, and what yeah. you've seen and experienced some, some stories on that. The way I phrase it is that the two hardest words in the English language are, are the most complicated words are yes and no. And there are just so many countless examples of parts of the world where, and I'll, I'm going to talk in massive generalizations for a minute because everybody's different, but parts of the world where really saying no directly is considered rude. Mm -hmm. And you don't want to be rude. You, you know, we're trying to build relationships. So the way not to be rude is to make sure that you're not being rude. And I'm not going to just say no, I'll say yes. And then we'll work back channels to figure out a way to solve this problem because that's how we do things here. Mm -hmm. Now, Put that into a global team where everybody is now working from home. There's no moments where you can actually sit down together face to face and say, okay, what the hell just happened here? So I think that it's very important to understand that there's large parts of the world where you could ask a direct question, get a direct answer, but it might not be that it might not be the answer that you think it's going to be. I'm, had a large client in the airline space. They were a software, aviation software, a German, German company. And they would win a deal with, say, Thai, Thai Airways or Japan, one of the Jap Japan um, airlines. All good. You'd have a local sales rep handle the deal. But then the support goes back to Germany. And so Japanese clients says, oh, well, you know, could we make this alteration and could we use this interface? And the German point of contact, who is very German in this example, <laughs> what he responds back either via email or just directly over a phone is, no, why would you do that? That's not a good, no, no, no. And the impression that that gets from the other side, the, in this case, the Japanese client thinks, wow, that's the most rude thing I've ever heard. Why would we want to work with this company moving forward? we should probably put an RFP to replace this. And sometimes those interactions can lose multi-million dollar deals. And so you have to be like so careful with, with this stuff, which I, I think it's absolutely, I'm oh, not sure if that, answer, that starts answering your question. That is absolutely fascinating. And so you said, so now you've given a good explanation and you were talking about the difficulty of global teams that are now working virtually where you can't sit down and talk about it. Yeah. What recommendations are you making to clients to handle that? 
the, the, the biggest seller this year in terms of the workshops and the, the seminars that I'm doing is around this. I have this hybrid team building seminars and it's very custom. It's very personalized because my argument is that the first rule of, of hybrid club is that there's no rules. And so it's up to every single team to define their rules. If not rules, let's at least call them norms. What are the norms that we as a group are going to agree to? And so the, the one tool that I, I can't recommend enough is what I call a communications contract. And this is, I, I think you can get it for free on my website. Uh, and I'll give you the link for later, Leadership Nomad website. Uh, so it's leadershipnomad.com. So leadershipnomad.com. And then you yeah, look that's, for the communications I'll have to, so, so on the back of the book is one of those like hidden links, right? So if you buy the book, you get the hidden link that gets you all of this free content. Well, you okay, gotta buy so the book, but I, I'll send the you the link. I, I can send the, it to you. Right, so you send me the link, the book I'll have it the, in the show notes. The book is the key, but yeah, we, I'm happy to give your audience guys the access to this stuff, it's absolutely fine. Okay, and the book, uh, and what, just for, to remind our listeners, is The Accidental Business Nomad. Okay, correct. so go ahead. The communications contract, which is a helpful tool. Go ahead. Communications contract is, in mine anyway, it's just, it's broken into three different parts, and it's designed to be worked through with your team. So you can, you, what I like to do is put it into a shared document, assuming everybody's virtual at this time, and everybody has access to be able to fill this thing in and build it. And essentially what you're doing is as a group, you are establishing what are, what are our norms? What are we going to agree that we're going to allow? How do we deal with timing? There are some people that always show up five minutes late. There's some people that don't do something. Let's, let's get this stuff out here on the table to define what's good, what's taboo that we will agree is not acceptable. What communicate? What what technologies are we going to use? Are we going to email when an issue gets heated? Can we agree that email never solves arguments? So what's that look like? Can we agree that we're all getting burnt out on Skype video calls? And maybe some of these calls we can jump on on video at the first five minutes and then just turn the damn videos off because it's exhausting. And then maybe we turn them on again at the end. There's there's no rules one way or the other. So to my point is, it's up to the group to figure out what that's gonna look like for them. And so this is simply just, it's just a guide. It's a, it's a, it's a somewhat of a blank camp canvas asking certain questions, pointing them in directions, and then letting them figure this stuff out for themselves. The big that sounds so helpful because it prods you as to what are the things that people normally run into trouble on. The, one of the most common ones is time zones. And, and yeah. you know, the, the phrase that's popped up, it's been around forever, but now, it's, now, it, now everyone's facing it is asynchronous communication. Oh, right, right. So I, I, I had an issue with a, with a business partner. He's based in the U.S. and we chat our our times to be able to communicate are really 7 a.m and 7 p.m that's just that's the closest overlap we get to overlapping business hours the problem is that at 7 a.m i've got my two little singaporean kids running around like crazy trying to get them ready for school or home-based learning or whatever other mess is going on right. and my chats are going to get distracted i'm going to be on and off my phone right because life gets in the way. 
Right. And the exact same thing at 7 p.m. I'm trying to get them, in, you know, trying to get them cleaned up and, you know, take That's bandages off and whatever. Right? Yeah, the two boys who beat themselves up every day. So, you know, yeah. make sure there's no bleeding and then just yes. get them, get them into bed. But, the, but, but you can be in the middle of a conversation and then all of a sudden you stop and you go quiet for 30 minutes and people in their own heads can interpret that in whatever. We have no idea what our own, our other people's heads are stories we're telling ourselves right and so part of this in, in in this example was just to say let's just look look i think that the best times to communicate are this time but at the exact same time let's let's acknowledge that if there is these weird gaps please do not try and read into anything i'm just chasing children right like i'm just i'm just trying to get other stuff done because of the timing and so once that got established and we and we both Every once in a while, we reinforce that just to say, look, I, look you know, by the way, I'm going to be offline for the next hour, but let's, I, I can solve for this problem when you're you know, over, overnight your time, right? And just to be that, that one extra sentence, rather than just having things just dangle and people not knowing if there's going to be a response right away, that gets really frustrating and people can read into that the wrong ways. So, I mean, that's just one very specific example about handling and agreeing to what asynchronous communication looks like, what are the, what are the uh, benefits to it, what are the potential dangers to it, and let's just get this out, out front first. That makes so much sense. And just if anybody's listening and they haven't heard of synchronous versus asynchronous conversations, synchronous means what we're doing now we're talking live and there's a give and take back and forth conversation asynchronous means you're still having a conversation but you're not doing it exactly at the same time so text email chat you know any of the slack channels and so what you're doing is taking asynchronous communication style and consolidating it in a, around a time frame so you can get that immediate feedback that you might want. So that's a that's the next step of asynchronous communication that's very creative to really get yeah. you know communication done. That's exactly huh. right. And and, yeah. and and different teams handle it in different ways. And and when you get into the time zone differences and now even if you're in the same time zone, people have different lifestyle is going on, right? Yeah. And so there, I, I get very frustrated where companies and in some cases, countries say, you are not allowed to email after 5 p.m. Like to me, I, I understand the intent there. I think the intent is good, but don't tell me when I can and can't get my stuff done. Maybe I'm a night, maybe I, I, I write. I mean, my writing, I, I only write in certain times of the day, but now, it, yeah. now I'm being... I'm being legislated again. I, I don't mean to get political, but I mean, it's just like, you know, if I'm sending an email at midnight, it's maybe that's my style. I'm not, I'm not trying to, I'm not subtly suggesting that everybody needs to respond to me at midnight. I think that's what they're trying to avoid. And to me, rather than making weird rules about it across an organization or a, or a country, like why don't we as a smaller team have this adult, honest, adult to adult, honest conversation and just figure it out for ourselves. Right, that is such a good point because I've heard people really carrying that banner of we only work these hours because I want my team to have right. work-life balance, but that, that just disregards everybody in a different time zone. You're assuming your work-life balance now is you're gonna make everybody's work-life balance yours. I, I right. Do, 
Yeah. Yeah. I've never worked that way. You know, I want to, I can sit down at, rarely at midnight. It's more apt to be five o'clock in the morning. (laughs) One of the big rules that came out, you know, of of the book, but it's, it's, it's sort of the, one of the first things that you figure out along the, the way of working globally is you have to treat people the way they want to be treated. The new golden rule, yes. Yeah, the new golden, the platinum rules. I'm, I'm sure every, all these, all these uh, gurus are running around trying to claim ownership to it. So I always find it amusing. This, this, plan, this has been around for a long time. But um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, 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 the golden rule is treat people the way you want to be treated. But you want to, th- I, I think the chapter I've got is called Throw, Throwing Away the Golden Rule. Yes. and treating people the way they want to be treated. And that goes back to the, the example that I gave earlier where here's my speech to my inherited sales team. I'm not, I, I treated them the way I wanted to be treated. That was a low hierarchy, an assumption that everyone's going to be free to speak up and push back and challenge. That's not how they wanted to be treated. And I needed to change my behavior, adjust it a little bit to make it more effective in that given scenario. Yes. Yes, absolutely. No, I've heard that before, and I, I've heard it as the new golden rule, but I like it the mm. platinum rule. That's a that's a, that that'll that's a good chapter. I'm glad you point that out. Okay, so yeah. I'm going to go back to the troubles you've seen, and you were oh, talking troubles. about yes, <laughs> the you know the yes versus the no, and then you started talking about that. What came out of that is you had lots of people working in India and around there, and you said yep. camp pains fizzled because there was infighting can you can you dig into that a little bit more there this is a bigger trend that i and i'd be curious your thoughts on this i noticed in my 15 years of really really focused on out stuff outside of the u.s the localization has strengthened across the world meaning it's more important to have a local answer and a local look and feel now than it was 10 or 15 years ago. I think you could get away with your American headquarters coming in and kind of telling you the way things are going to work. I think that a lot of these emerging markets, quote unquote, have emerged. And I think that there's a new level of self-confidence and awareness in terms of what people want. And so we got caught up in that, that challenge, which was is head, who's in charge here? What is headquarters' uh, command and control approach going to be? Are they going to tell everybody exactly what to do, or are they going to give more autonomy to regions and countries? We tried to build a global agency, tried to do, a, we, were, we were trying to force standardized marketing campaigns into countries that were rapidly localizing. And the answer in Singapore was very different than it was in Vietnam. And it was very different than anything that it looked like in the United States. And so I think that one of our failures was to, we were were trying to build a, a global standard in markets that were going the opposite direction. Interesting. I'd be curious your thoughts on that. I know you're, you know, have you being, you know, working in such such global environment that you do, do you find that there's more, I don't know, is localization growing? Is is, is localization the new globalization? 
I'm going to flip this podcast and interviewing you now. <laughs> well, yeah, I have, I, I think it really depends on the company as to yes. what they're doing. <laughs> now, one thing that really supports what you're talking about is I've seen some research from Common Sense Advisory, who's the ind industry research think tank, who said that when the internet came out and websites were flying up, most of them were going up in English. Now yeah. it's so prevalent in countries that smaller local countries or companies are yeah. putting websites up and they're in their local language. And yeah. all the research for years has shown that if you want to sell, you have to put your website in the local language because people yeah. are, you know, 90% will spend more time on it, 72% are more apt to buy, 56 or more will spend more money on a localized website. Mm -hmm. So everything says connect with people in their own language. So this, you know, this research shows that if you're not putting it in a local language, you're going to lose out. And it's the same with podcasts. Yeah. Podcasts started out, yeah. they were predominantly English. And I heard about a podcast that, you know, the number of people that spoke the Indian language that he started was very small. So he said, well, I'm going to do it in English because there's more people that would listen. And when he changed to mm -hmm. doing it in his local language, his listenership skyrocketed because there was less oh, really? available and people were interested. Oh, I see. Right, right. Yeah. Right. So how I see it play out in translation with what we do is it really, it depends on the company. It's really hard to manage a different agency in every country. There is really yes. only a handful of languages that you need to translate into to reach a majority of the world. And there was a, there's a podcast with Patrick Nunes about Rotary International on this, if this exact same question and his his process we also have a a large it's white paper or ebook it's beyond a blog and a case study uh, and outlining how they did it to give a vision to companies because they found that each country was doing their own thing and there was no coordinated message coordinated message and then Which they the lost yeah. the global brand so yep. they came in with brand guidelines, but then they have areas where the local country can really adapt to what the market is yep. doing, and they modify the global message to make sure that it's culturally appropriate. So that's what we're seeing a lot right now is it's not, it's not just translation, it's really thinking through where the translation is going to be used and culturally adapting it so it connects with that market. I like to, the, the phrase that jumps out at me is that you, the, the rule that you want to, or to think about is that you globalize wherever you can and localize wherever you have to. <laughs> Absolutely. Like Absolutely. Right, because then that's so, going to work in with your your strategy and your budget, but your localization is going to, you know, it's the play on the field. Correct. So if you and if you let it go too local, then exactly your point, you lose you lose a ton of the whole reason you're doing this in the first place, which is to grow a global brand, a, glo right. a global solution. Right. You lose mm -hmm. the uh, economies of scale if you've got every single country doing their own thing, using all of the same, you know, different back office approaches. 
I'll give you another yes, no example. I, this is this is the longest answer you'll ever get because I think you asked this question about 20 minutes ago. But a, a, what we found was the one of the big companies they were trying to standardize their their vendors. They were trying to get f- fewer agencies, just to, as you were saying, but they were also trying to standardize how they paid companies. And when you start talking about cross border stuff and POs yeah. and, and oh my god, that's for another that's another discussion but the they they rolled out a global purchase order payment system and so when we were going through the PO process they said look you know this is actually streamlined because it's now one system so you just go in you do it uh, you do not have to invoice every single country and deal with the different currencies it's all taken care of this is automation this is what we're doing this is globalization 20 you know, 2009 style, like we were on this, right? And so great, fantastic. So we get get everything going. Oh, well, Singapore signed into it. Nobody else had. All countries in this big company said, yeah, 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 we'll do it. And they didn't do it. So they said yes. And they said yes to headquarters. What we found was that we had to, in some cases, mail in, we were, we had this channel marketing program where we were doing work for about 120 companies across seven countries at the same time. And each of those programs was split up in some cases into four different sub programs. So we were sending out hundreds of invoices almost every month to seven different parts of the world. Total, total nightmare and disaster it was it would have required an entire full-time team just to do it correctly but that was all due to a misunderstanding where each country said yes but they really were planning on doing something different right so where my gray hair comes from (laughs) right and so you can't so it's a it's a it's a very delicate balance here because it's a culture that is so opposite on the scale of the United States, if you're, you know, if yes. you're listening to this from the United States, where you can't say a direct no, but it's very hierarchical. So it's so key to build those relationships and ask the questions that's going to solicit the right information on how something's going to get done. Correct. I love the name of your company, Rapport, right? Which is exactly what is required to do this well. You've got to build rapport with teammates around the world. And, and the fact that you know, we're, we're not jumping on planes anymore and doing quarterly meetings face-to-face, which often were done poorly, but there was better than nothing. Now this is all done virtually. And so I think you need to, re, again, rewrite the rules, rewrite the norms of how you approach this stuff. And I think more time needs to be spent building rapport with your counterparts in these different parts of the world so that you can avoid some of these, some of these headaches. Right, right. Okay, so speaking of rapport, which is a French word, which is localization and globalization, can you talk to me about language and translation and how you have handled that? What's worked, what hasn't? A lot of questions in there. (laughs) It's interesting. uh, and I get into this discussion frequently, especially with trans people in the translation industry, because they go, well, oh, so, you know, you, like, what what languages do you speak? I, I think on my LinkedIn profile, it says I'm still, I'm still learning English. I don't speak any of these languages. And it, it's really tricky when you're working in a global team or a regional team in Southeast Asia where, you know, what, what do you, if you're managing Southeast Asia, 
what are you going to do? You're going to learn Mandarin, Korean, Japanese, Bahasa, the dialects, and some of the you know, Thai, maybe, but that's that's not feasible. So what I'm interested in, and my business has been focused on, is the communication underneath the language, the invisible stuff after the fact. I, I and I don't mean to say I'm not belittle. I'm not trying to minimize the influence and the power of of local language. It's it's critical. It's incredibly important. But in many for many people like myself who are working in, I think I, I've probably spoken to people in ten countries today. You need to be able to figure out almost like a, how what's our what's our agreed upon bad English going to be that we're at least all kind of communicating the same way. The way we did translation, to, which is the, one of your questions, uh, the answer was poorly. We did it poorly. I never knew the detail and the intricacies and the complexities of proper translation. We had this situation when we were growing like crazy years ago. This is, this is we, we had a very cowboy uh, approach and it was very much just like we would companies would come to us, ask us questions. Can you do this? We just say yes. And then we'd figure it out afterwards. And one of our large clients came to us and said, look, our translation agency for Thailand, we've, we've screwed up. We need this. We need these documents, these marketing materials translated for an event in like three days from now. Our approved translation agency says that it'll be two weeks, but that's way too late. Is there any way you can help us? And so back in this, back in, this would have been 12 years ago, we were just raw, raw startup, we'll do anything. And so we just said, yes. And now, okay. So, okay, everybody into the conference room, let's figure out how are we going to translate all of this material into Thai? Any ideas were opened and I had a bunch of interns at the time. And so we start throwing out, okay, you call the Thai embassy, see if we can do this. This was before the days of Upwork and online where you could just, you know, find somebody to do a one-off project. This may be Craigslist, but that, there was very little options online to find this type of talent, especially last minute. So going around the room, all these ideas, Thai embassy, not helping. Who knows any Thai people? And one of the interns, as a joke says, oh, we'll go, we can go to one of those, you know, one of those dive bars where, where all the uh, sex workers work, you know, basically let's, let's go to, you know, the, who knows any time, let's go to, let's go to the prostitutes. And kind of, we all laughed about that and moved on. And then at the end of the meeting, that was like the only idea that was even remotely feasible that we could come up with. And so said, all right, this is, this is the strangest internship project you'll probably ever have. Here's some money, like go, talk to some, go, go talk to some Thai prostitutes and, and see what you can find. And I, and I, I have to be very careful with the story because I don't, I, this, I don't mean to sound sort of cavalier about it, but that's, I guess that's how we were behaving. Anyway, he ends up finding, talking to this woman and our, you know, I think our mindset was, look, talk to these people, find out if they know somebody, maybe they have a brother or sister or somebody, you know, that they could connect us to. And he ended up talking to this woman and she used to be an English teacher in Bangkok. And now she's working as a, she's a sex worker now in another country. And we said, well, would you be interested in doing this job? And we, and she, she said, yes. And she did it. And we turned all this stuff around and we sent it to the head of, of the Thai, you know, the head of marketing, I think for the company in Thailand. And he loved it. He, he had no idea how we did it. 
but he loved he this this stuff it looks great and and you did it so fast i'm going to i'll give you the whole i'll give you the whole book of business and so over that that moment we turned into a translation company right <laughs> accidentally we were an accident we were accidentally a translation company that day we had to go find this woman and i had in my head i had kind of these images of like i'm going to i'm going to save this woman because i'm going to pull her out from this horrendous life of this industry that is deplorable situation that she's in and we're going to give her the opportunity of a lifetime it's you know Richard Gere and pretty woman moment where I come riding in and save this person and had a conversation with her I go look you know would you would you like to do this full-time and she just basically laughed at me and just said outright no she said I make way more money doing what I'm doing she's like I don't really and I, she didn't say it exactly but she was like yeah I don't, I don't really want to get into this corporate BS that you guys do every day. It just doesn't seem like interesting to me at all. <laughs> so she, she turned us down and then we had a decision to make. It was like, you know, we can't really just kind of hang out outside prostitute bars. <laughs> That's not exactly how we're going to scale this translation business that we've just been had offered to us. So we, right. we did go back and we just said, look, this is uh, where we can't, we can't take the business. It was, it, it would have probably doubled the size of my operation overnight had we been able to take it just because he had a huge amount of business for us. But what we, what we learned was that, yeah, you, you probably shouldn't use prostitutes as <laughs> secondary <laughs> translators for your biggest client's marketing material. That's not, maybe that's the takeaway lesson. <laughs> that's the takeaway. And it's not because <laughs> it's not because they, she didn't do a good job. She did a great job, but and she now couldn't she make a great job. Money. Okay. She was like, yeah, yeah. She, She's laughing at me. She's like, well, you know, yeah, I'm like, here, you know, and here's the offer. Like, oh, this, you know, here we go. And she's like, Get out of so here. anytime <laughs> anybody thinks that translation is too expensive, just remember this story. <laughs> remember, don't don't call me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, call me. <laughs> yeah. No, that, I mean that's that's where I developed my respect for the industry. It's like, oh, this is this is work. And we, I mean, you know, we we got away with it, right? We got lucky. We, we, yeah. we happened to just, we got away with that one off, but man, that would have, that was not, that was not a sustainable way to build business. So that's my, pretty much my one and only real translation story. <laughs> right. So what did, how did you procure, or did most of the time your company, your clients procure translation? We had partners and, and the, oftentimes the companies would take care of that with a separate translation partner. Yeah. And to your point, you know, it's very difficult managing agencies that are different in different parts of the world. I uh, really, after that, it, it, it was an area that two, two points, it was just an area that I didn't really focus on because there were agencies taking care of it. And two, we, we had our own issues with translation from a language standpoint, because we were calling into all of these parts of the world. We basically had a call center where we were calling, we were doing B2B lead gen calling, and we, at any given time, we would have people calling in on behalf of, I don't know, six or seven languages. An absolute nightmare to try and manage for a small business, to try and get a single project manager to manage. How, like, how would a project manager be able to quality control something that was done in, in different languages? So, uh, this was another reason why our business pivoted away. It was just too damn hard. 
uh, we basically turn down business now that is languages that's outside of our our core competency. I and and I get inbound inquiries all the time from people saying, "Look, I need somebody for you know we're doing we're doing a one month campaign and we need to call into Thailand and Vietnam and China and Japan and Korea," and it's like so. If you think about the logistics of trying to find the talent to be able to do that, to get the Q&A quality control right, do it over a month and then stop it, uh, it's just not not feasible. It's just not good business. And I know very few companies who have actually figured it out and cracked that code. Yeah, there's, there's some interesting ways to do that, you know, leveraging telephone interpreting, but it is, what languages are you servicing now and how many of them? We are right now just doing, we've got, we've got English, we're doing one project in Korea, so we've got a Korea, but that, you know, so basically what I'm doing when, when companies come and say, can you handle this? We're saying it's got to be a year. If, if, if you, if you're going to give me a year of a contract, then we can get, the languages across Southeast Asia, but if it's under a year, we, we just have to turn it down. Okay. It's just not worth it. It's not, so, so we can do it. And it, in some ways it's getting easier because it, the ecosystems online of finding talents, there's a, there's a little bit more of a fluid network of, of contractors to be able to figure that out. But I, I try and stay away from that business now. Okay. So that's, that's really interesting, which I think is a good point is you have a strategy Mm. and you've picked out what language you're going to do. So this is what I talk to companies all the time about is figure out what your strategy is. Just don't zig and zag and picking languages and popping stuff up on your website, focus on a language and, and make a commitment to it. My, yeah, exa- yeah. Another way to say that is, you know, if you're thinking about expanding into new markets, pick one. Don't say. And if I get people there, oh, we're we're about to expand into Southeast Asia. It's like, well, what the, what does that mean? Where? Right. <laughs> where, you know, uh, what is, the market, the Asia market is where we, you know, the yeah, the ASEAN market has 500 million people in it. The ASEAN market, it's like eight countries. Yeah. A minimum of 10 different languages, totally different cultures, like everything is wildly different. So you can't, unfortunately, think about, we keep talking about Southeast Asia, but you can think about this in, in other parts of the world. But Southeast Asia is probably more, is, is the best example of just. Well, I mean, look at Europe. Absolute. And then. Yeah, the, the markets, you do. Yeah, no, this is true. So the, and we had the same challenges in, in, in Europe, finding, yeah. the, finding the language talent. And South America would be the same thing, even though most of it is Spanish speaking, you still have different cultures. But you know what, this is killing me because I love this conversation, but we're getting to the end of our time. So I've got to ask my standard questions. Bedtime for me anyway. Awesome. Right, right. I'm just getting going. All right. So just getting started. Your favorite foreign word. The... The, the the Bahasa, I, I do like some of the words in Bahasa. We were playing around with the idea of a muck. I was going to use that in part of the business, in the, the, the book title, something, you know, business, global business run amok. Amok is actually a Malay word, I think, of just chaos. And, and I, I, I always like that. But Bahasa is a good one. And so even when they say hello, you know, Terimakasi, Samasam, I think that their greetings are, are there's, a, there's a sweetness to it. Uh, just, I, I like as a, as a goofy, big, goofy Westerner, it's always a, a fun word to say. It's always fun to, to greet Wait, people. What's with the big greeting? Smiles. How would you greet somebody? Terimakasi. Term, I'm, I'm going to butcher it because that's, I'm, as an American, that's what we do. Uh, uh-huh. Terimakasi. Terimakasi. It depends on, I suppose, the part of uh, 
where you where you are if it's Indonesia or Malaysia. But um, Chemakasi's hello, oh sama sama, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great, sama samas, thank you. Okay, so how about your favorite vacation? Ooh, we did a, a vacation that probably uh, would be very common for most people. We took our one-year-old to Pakistan for two weeks. And that very was an interesting common. experience. <laughs> very common. Very common. Yeah. I think um, this is the first time I've heard of that. So tell me. Yeah, the, the Border Patrol in the U.S. doesn't always have a good sense of humor about that. You know, what were you doing in Pakistan? <laughs> vacation? <laughs> vacation we were so my my wife's sister she's in the foreign office she's british so she was stationed in islamabad and she was she was sending us emails saying she's six feet tall blonde woman you know uh she, oh, islamabad's fantastic she loves it you guys should come up i'm like yeah maybe and again it's kind of head trash right it's preconceived notions yeah. that, that certainly i was holding and many many hold but we went up there so we went to visit her and we went to a couple places. We took a train to Lahore. We, we, we went to the border. We went up to the foothills of uh, Abbottabad. So I've got a photo. This was about a year after they, they got uh, Bin Laden. So I've got a picture of me holding my one-year-old by beat-up sign, you know, welcome to Abbottabad. <laughs> that was a fantastic holiday. The, the, I, the danger happened in two, we were, a couple, couple weird things happened. We almost got crushed by a crowd just wanting to see us. Like people just, we were so, there were so few foreigners and, and, a, and a little very white baby. It was just incredibly unique. So crowds would form and it became a little bit dangerous just because of the crowds. I mean, it was, it was dangerous because people were so positive and curious, right? So that was kind oh, of okay. interesting. Okay, so and you did I, feel I, in like that because I, I had that experience m numerous times in China and Taiwan yep. growing yes. up and visiting. Yes. You get off to the smaller areas and just a crowd would form around you just yes. out of curiosity, yes. but I never felt yep. in danger. It was just... There were some times where it just, it, things just seemed like there was an energy that was just escalating and, and just things, kind of, you know, it, it, just a little bit, all it would take would be one weird thing to kind of go wrong. But, and, and, and of course, you're more paranoid for a number of reasons. With a one-year-old. Uh, yeah. One -year -old. Yeah. Uh, I was chatting with these guys on a train and we had a good conversation. It was really interesting. I just found that the people were just, fa they're fascinating people. They're smart. They're educated. They, they read a ton. The books, there were books everywhere. Uh, they're just screwed with this horrendous lottery of life. Like they're just in a bad place, bad leadership, bad everything. But and they were very curious as to as to the perception of their country from outside. Very curious yeah. about it. And so we had this great conversation. At the end of it, he said, "Oh, I'll connect with me on Facebook." And I said, "Oh, okay. I, I'm I don't I'm not on Facebook." And he that was he didn't believe me. I, I I'm not on Facebook. And so. He thought I was insulting him. He thought I didn't want to connect with him. Uh, and that escalated. He got, he got mad. And so we had to kind of like, <laughs> I, got, I, almost, I, almost got in, I almost got into a fight in Pakistan over my lack of Facebook, Facebook. connections. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, long-winded answer to a very easy question. But it was a but great But it trip. is another, there's a cultural thing of if somebody asks how you accommodate, yeah. do you want to go out for a drink sometime you say yes even if you have no intention yes. just because you could be being so yes. offensive so yes yeah. okay yeah. so how about i mean you've given us a bunch of crazy and rewarding cross-cultural experiences is there another one you want to share i mean i have 50 i've been married for you know 
so I'm married to a, a British woman, so we've got. I, I got. How, how much time do you have for you know <laughs> marital examples of cross cultural? No, I, I won't go there. But in, in fact, actually, I was thinking about you a couple of days ago because some of the media companies must use auto translators for a lot of media uh, news and, and stories. I know AI is starting to kick in, and then the translation <laughs> issues that pop up. They were there was an article about a, a rugby team. And the player, his position was the, was the hooker. That's that's his position. And right. the translation into the U.S. translation, the U.S. story changed hooker to prostitute. And so they referred to this guy as the team's prostitute. It was this big thuggish looking guy, you know. Like, Oh so there's, there's, your, there's your translation <laughs> fail. <laughs> oh, if you ever get those, send them right over to me because I love okay. those. <laughs> They're my, my pleasures in life. That is a good one. Okay, that I'll pour that. I, I saw oh. that. I was like, oh, I'm, I'm talking to Wendy in a couple of days. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll store that one away. <laughs> oh, just bring them on in. I love them. Oh, my gosh, Kyle. This has been so fantastic. If people want to reach you, where's the best place to reach you? So my website is probably the best starting point. That's so uh, we, what we did and just to kind of tie up the, the TSL, the marketing company. So because of the challenges that I talked about earlier, I decided to spin off this leadership focused consulting practice. It's still under TSL, but it's just a different brand. It's a look and feel. So it's leadershipnomad.com is the website. That's where, and I'll send you the link, the special link to get access to that other material. You can see the, the team courses that I do for people as well. That's the best starting point. The only, so you, you can't find me on, on Facebook, I'll tell you that right now. So I don't want to get into any fights. Uh, what social are you on? LinkedIn is, is, the, is, the, is the one. And actually I'm doing, a, I did a LinkedIn learning course. I filmed it a few months ago. So that will go live in a few weeks where the topic is, it's just 101, expanding your business into international markets. Oh, fantastic. And a different framework to think about all of the questions that you should be asking as you look to expand overseas. And one of the cool uh, ones that we added was, how do you do it without, without traveling? So that's kind of a cool, cool angle. Yeah, that's a nice new angle on that. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so if you want to reach him, it's leadershipnomad.com. Definitely go to Amazon and buy The Accidental Business Nomad. I've started reading it, and it's absolutely fantastic. You can tell from all the stories that they have. So thank you, listeners. This has been a fantastic episode. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. If you could do me a favor, pass this episode on to somebody that you know that's interested in global marketing or expanding international or just loves anything about global stories and give us a rating of five or above so uh, people can start following us so we will catch you next time and kyle thank you thank you so much that's a wrap for this session a big thanks to you for listening to the global marketing show hope you had just as much fun as i did New sessions launch weekly on all places you find podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and of course on our website. If you know someone interested in this topic, please tell them about us. Au revoir for now.